Mark chapter 1, verses uh, 21 through 34 is what we'll be covering this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I feel kind of out of it or I look kind of out of it today. Um, I got a head cold traveling this week, and um, I, don't ha- I, I lost the sippy cup to my NyQuil bottle. So I just drank it, and I didn't want to stop, and um, it was bad. So I'm kind of loopy this morning. Okay, so Mark chapter 21, verses uh, 21, or Mark chapter 1, see, told you. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 34. Uh, let me read, and then, and then we'll pray and get into it. And they, okay, immediately, remember last week we talked about that Jesus called these disciples to follow him, so now they're following Jesus, and it says, and they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was an, uh, in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? And he he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all Galilee and the surrounding regions, and immediately he left." the synagogue. And he entered the house of Simon and Andrew and with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And, she, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your loving power and your authority would arrest our hearts and capture our souls to serve and love Jesus today. I pray that we would be wise to what the enemy would want to do against the gospel of Jesus in this city. In the Bay Area, we know that it's not flesh and blood that we fight against, but spiritual forces, so keep us fighting the right things and loving the right things. Open our eyes today. If someone is blind to Jesus, may your word open their eyes. Your word says that the God, it's because the God of this age has blinded them. I pray that you would bring freedom this morning by your word through the Holy Spirit I submit my mouth and my mind to you. I ask God that you would, you would use me today to speak your word, Lord. We hold the authority of your word high, and we say we submit to it, God. Would you teach us, Lord? We love you. We pray against the enemy and his schemes and his vices and the things he does to blind people and condemn people this morning. We ask Jesus you would bring freedom in this place by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think two weeks ago now, we talked about the inbreaking kingdom of God, how Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God as God breaking in. And this is what Jesus did. And we said that it was something that Israel had been waiting upon for generations, the inbreaking of God, when God, 
the true and righteous king would break into their context, into their reality, into their world, and, and truly represent the king. When God would break in and establish his kingdom on earth, and we said that the kingdom of God had like three aspects to it. It was his power, his, his rule, and his dominion. His power over Satan and sin, his rule, his righteous rule over the universe, over the whole earth, and his dominion. It covered everything. God would break in and establish his kingdom. And we said this was spatial and spiritual. It was spatial, meaning that the world would not know poverty or hunger anymore, so it was economic. We said it was spatial that oppressive governments would be brought down, so it was political. And we said that the world would not know famine or deprivation, and all the little animals would get along with each other. An animal planet would be out of a job. And all these, all these like animals would get along, so it was environmental as well, and they were hoping for this day. And it was also spiritual. The power of sin would be destroyed in this day. The enemy, Satan, would be disarmed on this day, and all people would go to Jerusalem and worship God during this day. They looked to a day when God's power, his rule, his dominion would break into humanity and set everything right that went wrong and subdue, subdue all of their enemies. So what this made the people of Israel in the Old Testament was an eschatological people, we said. The people of God were an eschatological people, meaning they waited and clung for a hope of a better future, a future where God would, grant, would right every wrong he would restore all that is broken. He would mend all that is torn and bring to an end the present evil age. They were hoping for this day. And the way that we described it was this little handy-dandy chart. We said God would open a curtain and close a curtain. God would close a curtain on this age and open a curtain on the age to come. This is how they believed it to be. That God would close a curtain on this age, on Satan's time, Satan's ruling, characterized by sin. Sin would be gone. Sickness would be gone. Demon possession would be gone evil people would, would be gone, that triumph would be gone. And God would open a curtain on the time of God's rule, characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, righteousness, health, peace. God would close a curtain, and then he would open a curtain. But what happened was really a paradox, we said two weeks ago. A paradox happened, because God had indeed broken into time and space in Jesus, but the curtain had not fallen on the present evil age. So God had broken in, but the, the curtain wasn't closed on the present evil age. So, that, so there were these two curtains that were open. The kingdom of God was there, but also the kingdom of Satan was there. And we were left with this, the already, not yet, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here. It's already in Jesus. He came and he embodied the kingdom of God, but it's not yet. It's not yet. We're still waiting for its fulfillment. The curtain on evil had not closed. The kingdom of God has come into history. It's already here. Although we're waiting for its complete realization, it's not yet. So we said that a couple weeks ago. Now, what does this mean practically, though? What does this look like in everyday life practically? Practically, this means that whenever God's kingdom advances, whenever the kingdom of God advances in your heart, when you sense the moving of God, you sense the peace of God, you sense like God's doing and advancing you, moving you forward, or God's advancing in a city or in a nation, whenever God, God's kingdom advances, the kingdom of Satan is right there to resist, to throw a tantrum, as we'll see today, an attempt to stop 
the work of God. So whenever the kingdom of God moves forward and advances, the kingdom of Satan throws a fit, is there to resist, to tempt, to attempt to stop the work of God. This inevitably brings conflict. There is a conflict. In Mark, the whole book of Mark, he focuses on the nature of the conflict of the opposing kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, in Luke's gospel, in John's gospel, whenever whenever they talk about what Jesus did at the very beginning of his ministry, kind of has something to do with how they're framing this, their, their account of Jesus, how they're portraying who Jesus really is. John, remember, he tur- Jesus turned water into wine. And John does that for a specific reason. What Mark does, he talks about Satan. He talks about Jesus preaching in a synagogue and Satan fully manifesting in this one dude. And, and Jesus rebukes the enemy. What Mark is writing about is the inbreaking kingdom of God stopping and destroying the work of Satan. And that's what Mark, that's kind of how Mark frames his story. And you're probably thinking, well, I thought Jesus came to bring peace. I thought Jesus came to bring love, and his kingdom was subversive and grassroots. Yes, it was. Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. And it's a huge distinctive there, a distinction there. There's, there's a difference between Jesus being meek, but not weak. Jesus came humble, He came poor. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came meek. But when Jesus embodies the inbreaking kingdom of God, he challenges every other claim to power. Everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order, Jesus is not weak. He comes against all of those things. So the opposing kingdom is personified now in Mark's story as demons and devils and the demonic. Look at 1 John chapter chapter 3 on the screen. It says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to stop and destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to challenge and destroy Every work Satan does. His ministry is portrayed as a mighty onslaught against the work of Satan. Whether these took the form of demon possession among people, or hypocrisy, or cruelty, or hard-heartedness among rulers, Jesus comes against it. And his whole ministry is interpreted as the inbreaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world to release those whom Satan has bound. When Satan holds down someone, when they're not allowed to be free from their sin, or when a person let in, when somebody let in so much of a demonic control and influence that 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 person actually becomes possessed. Jesus comes to free. Colossians 1 says, Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain, remember that word, domain of darkness, And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So notice these three words keep coming up again and again and again. Rule, domain, power. These words, rule, domain, power, are used time and time again in the Bible describing the kingdom of Satan. And how it keeps humanity in a state of slavery. How it keeps humanity in a state of selfishness, of violence, and oppression. 
But these words also are used to speak of the inbreaking kingdom of God, setting the world right again. His domain has come to set all things right again. So when Jesus began his ministry, the rule, the domain, and the power of God was coming up against the rule and the domain and the power of Satan. Now, let's pause for a second, and you're going, okay, this is, this is all sounding like some sort of fairy tale here. This is sounding like some kind of fantasy saga, and you're just waiting for me to start mentioning trolls and like pasty teenage vampires and demon, you know, like these sort of things, like friendly dragons. You're like, where does this all come in? And it sounds like a fairy tale. Okay, demons, you're saying, are like make-believe. We just make them up. We'll quote to you. We quoted this, I think, the second Sunday or something from Usual Suspects, Kaiser Soze. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that it doesn't exist. Sometimes you guys use your authoritative narrative as Hollywood. That's fine. We'll just quote that. But maybe you read, C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So you're going, okay, you quoted a movie, a dead author, and an old Bible. Still not convinced about demons. What if your world, really, was only what you see? What if it only came through observable um, Facts, things that you can prove in a laboratory, things like that. Things, scientific fact, prove our existence. And the people in the Bible to believe demons were archaic. They're old. I would say this. First of all, it's, it's arrogant to say that. And second of all, two philosophers coined this phrase. It's chronological snobbery. It's saying we're further along in history, therefore we're smarter and better. It's wrong to think that. But I think most importantly, it's not satisfactory. It doesn't answer every question. Where do you get the answer to the question of ultimate evil? Where does that come from? What if, what if you're left saying it's all observable, it's all what you see? What about genocide? What about modern slavery? What about oppression? What you would have to say is this is just a part of the survival of the fittest, where the strong survive and dominate and advance their species, and the weak get dominated and die out. You have to come to that conclusion. If you don't say there is no ultimate evil, and you have to say there's no ultimate justice, what do you do about ultimate justice? Do people who oppress and rape and kill ever meet ultimate justice? See, the Bible tells a story where the ultimate personification of evil is Satan and demons and rebellious humanity. And the ultimate personification of justice is Jesus going to the cross to destroy Satan and demons and die for rebellious humanity. There is a real evil, and there is a real justice. The Bible teaches that Satan and his forces pursue their objective of bringing the world evil, bringing all forms of evil into the world. This includes, above all, deceiving people and hindering them from grasping the truth about God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. It says this, and this is what we're praying this week during our prayer meeting. And if you can't come, please pray this this week over this, this church, this young church, this city, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. If the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan works really hard to keep you jaded 
and bitter and unrepentant and under the wrath of God. So it's no surprise that from the moment Jesus began to actually preach and teach the kingdom of God in Capernaum, he was drawn into this conflict with the opposing and oppressing kingdom of Satan. But what we see here is Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. This isn't an even match. This isn't dualism. This isn't yin and yang. This isn't like that. Jesus' kingdom trumps the kingdom of darkness. That's why everyone in the synagogue is astonished at Jesus. Their jaw is dropped open, literally. That's what that word means. They're like, what is going on here? Literally, they're, they were out of their minds. Their minds were blown at Jesus' teaching. Look at Mark verse 21 in chapter 1. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. In a synagogue, it wasn't the temple. It was a place that, that certain prominent towns had where they would come together and learn the Torah together. So they were all together, and they were learning and studying, and Jesus was teaching. And they were all there, and he was, his, they were astonished at his teaching, verse 22. For he taught them as one who had authority, exousia in the Greek not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus said to him, shut up. That's what that word literally means. He stands up and he says, shut up. He doesn't go, ushers, can you escort this man out of the building? He looks right at him and goes, shut up. I mean, that would have been awesome to hear Jesus say that. To be in the synagogue and Jesus stands up and just like, dude, shut up. Not, but he wasn't speaking to the guy, he was speaking to the demon. He spoke directly to the demon and told the demon to shut up and then come out of him. Look at verse 26. And it says, and the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all, they were all amazed at this point. They were, okay, they were amazed. And so that they question among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching, but they were amazed by his actions. To be a bystander there, to be in the synagogue and watch Jesus do this, they, their minds were absolutely blown away. Here's a man who was teaching the scriptures like they've never heard before, ever. And then one demoniac stands up and says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? And Jesus says, shut up, come out of him. And blah, 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 on the ground, leaves him, the man stands up, and everybody's going, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Who is this man? What is this authority coming from? Astonished means they were out of their minds. Their minds were blown at his teachings. But authority means this. The, the way that, the, the way that he, he handled the scriptures, I mean, amazed means this. That means they were kind of freaked out. So at the beginning, they were like, their minds were like, oh my gosh, my mind is blown at the way he's handling the scriptures. But when he cast out that demon, they got a little bit afraid. So it was this amazement mixed with fear and terror. And that's what happens when you follow Jesus through the book of Mark. And if you're following Jesus closely, you're going to have, when you follow Jesus, there is an amazement mixed with a little bit of fear, a little bit of terror. Like, wh- what, is, what is Jesus going to do today? He has all authority and all power. It was amazement mixed with fear. Jesus' authority was word and it was deed. It was word and deed, and it blew their minds, and it freaked them out at the same time. So what is this authority that Jesus had? Three things. It was a supernatural authority. It was a natural authority. 
and it was a limited authority. It was a supernatural authority. We'll spend most of the time there, and then quickly we'll cover natural and limited authority. Number one, it was a supernatural authority. Jesus' words and deeds in the synagogue displayed this supernatural authority, supernatural quality about it. Jesus has the power over non-human forces that threaten to oppress people. Jesus has power over non-human forces. Satan, demons, illnesses, nature. Jesus demonstrates that God's rule over the world, seen and unseen, has arrived. God's rule has arrived in Jesus. The supernatural side to this authority is shown over the demonic. And when Jesus confronts this demoniac, they're hostile, they're filled with anger, and they're fearful. It's a confrontation of raw and naked power. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's in conflict with the unclean spirits that possess the, the demoniacs. So he's the whole, he has the Holy Spirit, and he's coming up against the unclean spirit. So it's like the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God versus the unclean spirits, the unholy spirits. And there's this collision. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and now is confronting all unholy and unclean spirits. The goal of Satan and the unclean spirits is to survive. They want to survive by dominating and destroying people. Sometimes they do this very subtly. Sometimes they do this blatantly. This man was subtly sitting in the synagogue, minding his own business, probably comes in just glazed over, no one, personality gone, comes in, sits down, and then this opposing kingdom of God causes this man to fully manifest. I have seen this happen in real life, and at first, well, it's, it's freaky. Somebody just told me this morning that this happened to them this week with somebody in their car, and they started talking about the Bible and talking about God, and they fully started wigging out. This happens. When a demon is so, when it, it so absorbs a person and absorbs them and takes over them, the Bible calls it possession. There's a difference between possession and oppression. This one actually possessed his person. And when the kingdom of God comes and threatens, it, it starts throwing a tantrum, it starts throwing a fit, it tries, starts, tries to start to make a scene where naturally you'd go, okay, 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 I'm sorry, I'm out, I'm out. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes, hey, shut up. Come out of him. There's an authority there. The Bible says in John 10, 10, the thief, Satan, another name for Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. To steal and kill and destroy. That's what Satan has come to do. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Sometimes Satan does this very subtly. He comes and he steals and he kills and destroys your life subtly through unbelief and a hard heart, bitterness against God, against the church being jaded by Christians or Christianity. Sometimes it's more blatant like you might be tormented in here. You might hear voices in here. You might have night terror after night terror. And it's more of like a possession. He's taking over and he's like coming in. This this man had been damaged to the point that this demonic power actually swallowed him up and usurped the center of his self and started actually speaking through him. It's important to pay attention to the language that Mark uses here. 
he calls this demon unclean. He says it's an unclean spirit. Now, this word unclean is a religious term that has spiritual, like a spiritual diagnosis. When some, something's unclean or something unclean or unholy touches someone in the Old Testament, it took control of them and it banished them from God's presence. If somebody was unclean, they couldn't go into God's presence in the Old Testament. So by saying this man had an unclean spirit or a demon, Mark is saying that we have an enemy that, that, that seeks to estrange us from God. Some spiritual force has taken control in a human being and attempts to thwart God's purposes by twisting and maiming human life and attempting that and, and alienating that person from God and from others. Mark is saying that we, that, uh, that demonic realm is trying to pull us from God and from others. Demons in Mark's gospel are powerful forces that seek to destroy those whom they oppress. Throughout the book of Mark, the demons throw down those they possess, they convulse them, they cause foaming at the mouth, they cast them into fire and water, they lead them to scream and slash themselves with stones. The demons seek also to get power over Jesus by calling him out, by saying, I know who you are. And when the demons are confronted by Jesus, they are afraid, they try to dominate, they try to negotiate, they try to save themselves, and they're willing to be destructive in order to survive. The demonic realm is real. Demons possess and oppress people. And this unseen battle against the demonic supernatural kingdom is personified in vignettes like this. See, in Mark's story world, there is a demonic presence. In the story world of Mark, there's a demonic presence. There's a real abiding demonic presence. And I would be, and you would be, we would be very naive to think that there is not a demonic and dark presence in the story world of San Francisco or the Bay Area. If you think, oh, there's no demonic things that happen in San Francisco or the Bay Area, we would be naive. There is common grace in this city. There is common grace that we make the coolest, most advanced stuff and have more nonprofits than any other city in the world. We're cool. We know that. There is common grace here. I agree. But Satan and his forces not only deceive people and, and hinder them from grasping the truth about Jesus, but also works very, very hard to bring about the demise of the church through inciting moral evils in the people in the church. This is why when churches in this city or the Bay Area, when they fall, they fall hard. They don't just dwindle to nothing. The pastor has an immoral fallout, an immoral affair, or doctrine in the church becomes so watered down that they believe everything and nothing at the same time. Or when a church in this city falls, they follow their leader to a town named after himself, and they all drink Kool-Aid to their death. That's what happens in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. There is a demonic presence in this city. And look at what the demon says here. What have you to do with us? This is an idiomatic statement, like an Old Testament statement, basically meaning, whoa, bro. Why are you got to be so hostile? Calm down. Don't get crazy right now. This demoniac, this demon, like, fully manifested, was like, whoa, stop. Can you calm down for a second, dude? I mean, it'd be like you went to coffee with your friend, and it was just casual, and they started, like, bringing up all your past relationships and why they never worked and then, like, why you will never hold a steady job and why you smell and all this stuff. And you're like, whoa, 
coffee, hanging out. Let's talk about the movies or something. It's like you come to church on Valentine's Day and we do a demon message on Valentine's Day. You're like, whoa, this is Valentine's Day, man. I mean, what about the love message? I thought we were going to be like, Jesus is love, that's why I came. I want to hear about love or sex or something, not about demons. That's what the demon was saying. It was like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Calm down. You don't have to get crazy yet. And this is what's happening here. This perfectly content demoniac strolls into the synagogue, and Jesus starts to preach and teach the kingdom of light. And this demoniac gets shaken and threatened and starts to attack and do everything it could in that context to keep this man possessed. See, we never really, we're never really ready for Jesus to break into our world. I know there are people that try to clean up their lives before they come to God, but that never really works. Normally, Jesus always, like, finds us, and he breaks into our world, and we get some revelation or hear some truth, and it breaks into our soul, and we know it's right, but then there's the flesh that says, not yet. You haven't finished college yet. You're not going to be shipped off to be some missionary yet. Not yet. You live in the Bay Area. Not yet. I mean, that's, that, when you live in the suburbs, then you start following Jesus. You don't start following Jesus here in this city. Don't, not yet. And you feel this, like, pull, like, God's pulling, you're like, well, I can't. You don't know what, like, I have a really good group of friends here. Not yet. My, my career is taking off. Not yet. My, my art is taking off. Not yet. And we feel that, very practically, we feel that pull. And Jesus doesn't come when you're ready, really. He just comes. And he breaks in. And this demoniac, this demon was not ready. He's like, whoa, calm down, not yet, what are you doing? But Jesus breaks in. And if you feel like you're damaged in here beyond recognition, or you're oppressed beyond being saved, or you, are, you think you're so unclean that you can never be restored, Jesus has the authority to bring freedom and restoration. And he can do it today. He could free you. And it's a process, though. I mean, these disciples didn't really get this. It's a process. You follow Jesus, as we talked about last week. But he can free you. Natural authority. Let's do these last two very quickly. Natural authority. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so everyone knows who he is. I love this. And immediately he left. I mean, can you imagine, like, after a concert or something, and you're, like, an amazing musician? I am not a musician at all, so I would have any idea what this feels like. But if you are, and you had the best show of your life, and everybody's coming up to you, like, oh, my gosh, you're amazing. You're going to go huge, and then you're like, I got to leave, and you just leave. I mean, you don't enjoy it. You don't high-five people. You don't, like, sign things. I mean, you're gone. And Jesus here, like, everyone is starting to talk about him. Everyone's crowding around him, and it says, uh, I got to leave, and he leaves. He left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. And Jesus has power over illnesses and disabilities as well, other non-human forces that oppress and diminish people. God, God cares about the material world. He cares about our physical body. He cares about this physical planet. Jesus removes, in the book of Mark, leprosy, heals illnesses, cures afflictions, reverses paralysis, and restores sight, hearing, and a withered hand. 
Notice, there is no talk here about this fever being demonic. There's some people that think that the Bible treats everything as demonic. If they're sick, they have a demon. If they're mentally unstable, they have a demon. If they're constipated, it's a demon. Demons everywhere. There's some people that think that. Oh, how you feeling today? Demon. Everything's a demon. And God, and God the Bible is very honest. This, Peter's mother-in-law was just sick with a fever. Sickness can be demonic, don't get me wrong, and supernatural, but being sick is a natural part of this life, and the Bible normally treats it as such. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and Jesus shows that his authority is not just powerful, a, a powerful speaker and an exorcist, but he's a compassionate healer. The physical body, your physical body matters to God. Jesus didn't work to preach the gospel and free people spiritually from unclean spirits and demons, but he also worked to meet real felt need. He worked to alleviate human suffering. He didn't heal at all. He didn't heal everybody, but he also sent his disciples with the same authority to heal and to touch and to restore. The gospel of Jesus suggests that everything we do in this physical world matters to God. Everything we do. I think we get that here. We understand that everything we do has impact on the world. And Jesus says that everything we do matters. The created world and what we do in the ministry with the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, it all matters to God. Relationships matter. The environment matters. Human suffering, it all matters to God. Because Christianity is not a book religion. Christianity is not a book religion. In the time of Jesus, Judaism had become very much a book religion. This is why scribes had authority. This is why scribes knew the, knew the Bible the best. They had the authority because they knew the Bible the best. And that's why everyone said, he speaks with authority, not like the scribes. So the authority the scribes had were just, we know traditions, we know what the Bible says. And, uh, Judaism had become a very book-type religion. Jesus came with word and deed. Yes, he handled and taught the word and exposited the word and opened the scriptures like no one else did. He also embodied the scriptures and the power of God to restore and to set right and to heal. So yes, you and I, we need to know the Bible. I think that this generation, my generation included, have grown up, even in the church, being Bible illiterate. Biblically illiterate, having no idea what the Bible says. So somebody comes up to you and gives you this super new age teaching. You have no context or no frame of reference to, to compare it to. We're illiterate. I was actually in a bookstore in the city, local bookstore, went to their religion section and could not find a Bible. They had the Quran, they had the Torah, they had the Book of Mormon, they had the Karma Sutra, but they did not have the Bible. They had it all, but no Bible. We should, you should I recommend highly that you get a good Bible and that you read your Bible. But Christianity is not just a book religion. It's a life of faith. It's trusting and obeying and following Jesus with our activity. To relieve human suffering and felt needs, to aid in human flourishing in the city, not to gain the favor of God, but because he has called us and he has freed us. It's word and deed. C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that time and space, heat, cold, and all other colors and tastes, and all the animals and all the vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that, and that God insists 
and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Christianity is not a book religion. It's a life of faith. It's understanding what the Bible says and then doing what the Bible says, living this in our communities, in our city, in this, in this area. Lastly, limited authority. Jesus had also a limited authority. The authority of Jesus, his power of God's rule, is limited because Jesus and his followers never used the authority of God's rule on other humans. God's rule is such that people are to use power to serve others, not dominate or oppress them. Jesus didn't use his authority to say, hey, you better follow me or I will burn you up right now. He doesn't do that to anybody. He doesn't usurp his power, his authority over humans to go, hey, human, do what I say now. Never. He always usurps his authority over the things that bind and oppress and destroy humanity. Other rulers and and authorities in Mark's story, like demons and sicknesses and government, oppress and they dominate and they possess, but Jesus liberates. Look look how, how Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. This Greek phrase, lifted up, literally means raised her. He raised her. Mark is pushing here his readers forward. He's pushing his readers forward because from this point on in Mark's story, when Jesus heals someone, this same verb is used over and over and over again, raised. Jesus raised the paralytic in chapter 2. He raised Jairus' daughter in chapter 5. He raised the boy with the unclean spirit in chapter 9. He raised blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10. And three days after, Jesus was crucified. He was laying in the tomb, and this angel tells these gals that go there early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body, and the stones rolled away, and the tomb is empty, and this angel is sitting there next to the bed, and he says this to the girls, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. I want to draw a real practical point to this really fast. Did did Peter's mother-in-law be restored to die again? Yes. Did all these people in this story be healed to die again? Yes. Death will come for everybody. But Jesus conquered death at the cross. And he rose to new life that we can have new life as well. The first enemy Satan or Jesus destroyed was Satan. The last enemy is death. The Bible says in the Corinthians. Jesus restores His resurrection actually brings about new life. Now, what this means is is that throughout the the, the book of Mark, not everyone is healed. But everyone that believes in Jesus has this resurrected life. The authority of Christ is limited only in that he doesn't make people follow him. He doesn't make people love him. He doesn't make people serve him. The authority of Christ doesn't bring bondage. It brings freedom. It raises up and it liberates. The authority of Christ to raise you isn't to make you follow him. It frees you and liberates you so that you can follow him. Let me read you Romans 6, a wonderful passage. You could probably spend nine years in just this passage. 
there's a lot of context, but I want to read it to, to show you this. Paul, writing right before this, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So some people naturally think, well, if sin abounds, if grace abounds where sin abounds, I'm going to send my, my brains out so that I can get more grace. Paul goes, are we to continue in sin that we can have more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, uh, with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why were we freed and liberated? Why were we raised that we would walk in newness of life? How do we know that this is what happened to Peter's mother-in-law? Because she got up and she served Jesus. She had no power or capacity to serve Jesus before he raised her. She was sick. She was bedridden. She could do nothing. But when Jesus raised her, she didn't raise up, rise up and go, okay, I'm going to go about what I was doing before. She raises up, rises up and serves Jesus. What Christ has done for us by dying in our place and rising to new life is not oppressive. It's freeing that we could walk in newness of life. That's what the authority of Jesus does. He calls us and gives us the, the power to walk in this new life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that you come to bring, you've come to bring freedom, that you've come to bring peace, that you've come to bring, to, to set the captives free. And I ask, God, if anyone in here is is just oppressed or depressed. If there's anyone in this room, God, that you want to save, that you want to set free, I pray you would set them free, God. I pray you would call them, that you would deliver them, Lord. And I know there's times, Lord, there's people in here that you're, you might be calling them, but they're, they're just not ready yet. I ask, God, that you would open their eyes. Would you minister to us today? A lot of us in here are just maybe getting really beat up by depression, by, it might be demonic, it might be physical or whatever. You've come to free us. You've come to set us free. That does not mean that we'll live in this life a perfect life. It's already not yet. But Lord, I pray that we can walk this life with perfect peace. We can walk this life knowing God. We can walk through this life proclaiming that I've been redeemed and God is restoring this world. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name.